Hello and welcome to episode 21 of Not Reserving Judgment, a podcast about the latest intrigues, triumphs, and outrages in Canadian constitutional law. I'm Josh DeHaas, counsel with the Canadian Constitution Foundation. I'm Joanna Barron, executive director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation. And I'm Christine Van Guyen, the CCF's litigation director. In today's episode, we'll discuss the latest developments in the anti-Israel protests. And we'll share our bad legal takes of the week where we take a lighthearted look at some legal opinions that didn't quite land. We'll tell you what happened last week at the International Court of Justice where South Africa has accused Israel under the Genocide Convention. But first, let's talk about a police technique that caught a British Columbia killer, but that raises some constitutional concerns for us. So just to warn you, this is a pretty horrifying story. So if you're listening with kids, you might want to skip ahead a little bit. Back in 2017, British Columbia was on edge after a 13-year-old girl went missing while out on a walk to Tim Hortons. Police tracked her mobile phone to a wooded area of a park where they found her body. And for more than a year, the case seemed to be going nowhere. And then all of a sudden, police announced that they had arrested a suspect, Ibrahim Ali, who was a recent Syrian refugee. And last month, Ali was found guilty of first-degree murder at a very tense trial. At one point, his uh, defense lawyer argued that the sex might have been consensual, and this prompted the girl's father to uh, allegedly threaten the defense lawyer. He brought a gun to court. He seemed to really mean it. Long story short, Ali was was convicted. Now, the surprising turn of events, which was revealed just this past week, is how they caught this killer. So police basically engineered a, a dragnet where they surreptitiously took DNA, essentially just on their ethnicity. And then they had that DNA tested. Police knew from the from a DNA sample taken from the victim's body that the killer likely had Kurdish DNA. And uh, Kurds are an ethnic group in Turkey, Iran, Iraq, and northern Syria, for those who don't know. The way they did this was like something out of a movie. They, they went to a Kurdish New Year's celebration and they posed as a company testing new kinds of tea. They asked people to participate in a taste test, took their names and contact info, and handed out the little teacups, which were very carefully marked, along with Tim Horton's gift cards, apparently. And this was just a ruse to get their DNA, and then they tested it, which found that one of the 150 Kurdish people was the brother of the killer. This allowed them to figure out who the killer was. And... Um, the, the big question here is whether or not they had a warrant, and even if they did, whether that warrant would be constitutionally compliant. So um, I'd actually be a little surprised if police didn't have a warrant, um, but I would actually be surprised if police did have a warrant because warrants are supposed to be issued where there's reasonable grounds to believe that like a specific person has committed a specific crime. And my understanding is they're not normally used to like target a whole big group of people like this. Um, I realize police, I realize people might be saying, you know, what's the problem here? They knew this person had some Kurdish DNA and they can just destroy the DNA samples they took from all these innocent people. Plus they caught this really heinous killer and put him away, which is great news. And I, I totally agree with that. But the concern I have, like with so many things in civil liberties is if they can do this to you and your ethnic group, or maybe your political party, we can be in big trouble really fast. So we have to be really careful. My concern here is that this is like a violation of Section 8 of the Charter. And for those who don't know um, what that is, Section 8 protects 
protects the right to be secure against unreasonable searches and seizures. And Section 8 is often thought of as protecting a reasonable expectation of privacy, but the better way to think of it, I, th I think, is that it's not about like shielding our bodies um, from police or from the government, but it's more about keeping our information secure so that we have the space to, you know, do things like or organize ourselves politically without the people in power going, going after us. Section 8 has um, its historical roots in this case called Antic and Carrington, which was a seditious libel case where one of the king's messengers intruded on the house of one of his political critics without a warrant to seize some pamphlets. And uh, this caused a huge outcry by people who didn't think police should be intruding on their political opponents in this way. So in other words, it exists to prevent the executive, like the king, the prime minister, the police from, from snooping on us. And um, in Canada, the Supreme Court's Section 8 jurisprudence, put it kindly, is a little bit muddled, but at least some judges have recognized that Section 8 really is about preventing government snooping and about preventing dragnets. Uh, for example, Justice Laferay, in a case called Duarte, famously said, while there are societies in which persons have learned to their cost to expect that a microphone may be hidden in every wall, it is a hallmark of a society such as ours that its members hold to the belief that they are free to go about their daily business without running the risk that their words will be recorded at the sole discretion of agents of the state. And he references 1984. Basically, if we were not careful and we let police just snoop without warrants, we're going to end up in like a totalitarian state, just like in the, the Orwell book. And, you know, Justice Kerry Kassanis, who's currently on the court, she's recognized this um, concern and how Section 8 protects it too. And the way it protects us against snooping and dragnets is, like I said, through getting a warrant, which means going to a judge who's independent of the executive and therefore not as self-interested as the police in um, doing the search. And you have, the police have to show that there's you know, reasonable grounds to believe that police are going to find a specific thing in like a specific place. And uh, Christine and I actually learned about this in our criminal procedure class at Osgood taught by the great Francois Tanguay Renault. And uh, I was curious to get his his thoughts about this. So I actually reached out to him. Um, basically he said, you know, police would probably argue that the DNA on the cups was abandoned. Um, and there's lots of case law that says if you like abandon a tissue or a cig cigarette butt or whatever, you've, you no longer have an interest in that and police can search it. But if police engineered this abandonment, then that wouldn't be likely constitutionally okay. And so he thinks that they would need a 487.05 warrant. And I looked at this, and this is part of the criminal code that says police can get warrants to, to search DNA. But they need reasonable grounds to believe that, quote, a person was a party to the offense and, quote, forensic DNA analysis of a bodily substance from the person will provide evidence about whether the bodily substance found on the victim was that person. And so this sounds, again, like you're talking about a specific person and not about, you know, anyone who happens to be Kurdish in Vancouver. The public interest in this case was so high that even BC's premier has been forced to comment on it. And Premier David Eby said he really struggles with the idea that police shouldn't have done this, which sounds like he was in favor of it. And that's kind of surprising coming from a former head of the BC Civil Liberties Association. But it's also understandable considering 
everyone in BC wanted to catch this killer, right? And so my view is that, you know, people can and should be happy that this killer was caught, but we need to ask some serious questions about whether we're okay with police taking DNA from a big group of people without them knowing it, when there's no reason to suspect that most of them have have committed a crime. And the concern here is that if the government can collect our DNA or other private info like this, they can control us in all kinds of kinds of ways. And, you know, China is already doing this. They're taking DNA from tens of millions of men and advocates for civil liberties there are pretty sure this will be used to, you know, track down dissidents and punish people who disagree with the government and possibly also their families. And uh, Joanna, when we talked about this yesterday, I know you shared some of my concerns, but you also brought up some pretty wild police tactics that you uh, heard about back when you were clerking. Why don't you share that story? Yeah, this was definitely the most memorable case I worked on when I was clerking. There were some basically gangland murders happening in the West End of Toronto, um, and they knew the suspects were in the Jamaican community. And so what the cops decided to do, even though they had tried many ways to investigate these crimes, nobody was willing to collaborate with the police, um, which tends to be a problem in gangland crimes. Nobody wants to snitch. So they did, what they decided to do was have an officer who was a Jamaican background, he was about 6'5", impersonate an Obeya spiritual advisor. So Obeyaism is a traditional uh, Jamaican, uh, maybe Caribbean, actually, uh, spiritual system and essentially bring in the suspect's mother and ultimately the suspects themselves um, under the ruse that this spiritual advisor could um, have some type of supernatural ceremony and remove the curse. Um, it was very elaborate. I told you guys yesterday that one of the things the cops did to convince this family that they had that this guy had spirit uh, supernatural powers um, was uh, a female officer had pulled over the suspect. And while she was like taking the driver's license, she started coughing and couldn't go through with the ticket or arrest. <laughs> but there was another thing with like uh, an egg that had blood in it. I think that the officer in one of these ceremonies brought in an egg that they had like inserted red dye into. It was really weird. In any event, ultimately, the spiritual advisor said, if you want me to get all of these curses off of you, you have to admit to everything. Um, and the suspects came in and they admitted to everything. And obviously they were charged and prosecuted. And there were questions raised about whether this was uh, racist, uh, whether cops would do this, they would impersonate a rabbi or a priest. And in fact, there are instances where cops have impersonated rabbis or priests. So the court ended up finding, and I don't believe this went to the Supreme Court. Uh, no, I don't think it got leave. Um, the court ended up finding that this was admissible evidence um, and that it, it wasn't uh, racial profiling. Of course, here it's different, right? Like they they already basically, they had a lot of evidence that suggested who was behind it. They just, they needed firm enough evidence to build a murder case on. It's really different from saying, well, we know it's a Kurdish person. So we're just going to target the whole genetic, the whole like bloodline of Kurds in Vancouver. Um, but uh, I'm, I'm always surprised by the ingenuity of cops. But no, certainly they they should have tried a different path at getting this evidence uh, that was not just yeah directly targeting 150 members of the Kurdish community. Um, I think that uh, crosses a line. Any thoughts, Christine? If, if I if I had like a an egg that I cracked open and someone had told me there was a curse on my family and 
uh, the then there was this blood and an egg and I needed to use witchcraft and um confess to everything I'd ever done. I don't know, like it might work on me. <laughs> so the cop part was pretty convincing, right? It's like she pretty just started innovative. coughing and somebody put a spell on this cop. Is that what happened? Yeah. Joanna? So they so he was saying that he had like put like a field of protection around them and he could like do things like I remember the turn of phrase was Babylon and the Beastman. Um that's how they refused for referred to the cops and the justice system. And he said basically I can protect you from Babylon and the Beastman. <laughs> okay, okay let's move let's move on okay so uh last week the submissions in the international court of justice for provisional relief ordering israel to immediately cease all of its operations in gaza against hamas um, were heard this was an application brought by south africa and uh, I didn't listen to all the submissions, but I listened to a few hours of both sides. Um, and I assume that many people did not have the opportunity to watch these proceedings. So uh, we thought that I'd give a little bit of a summary of what each side said and also give my take. And just to say up front, I've tried to be very open-minded about this. Even right before we got on this recording, um, I read an op-ed in the Globe and Mail by Avi Lewis making the case for genocide. Um, but I do have a clear point of view about this. And I'll walk you through why I've come to this point of view, that this is an obscene allegation. So genocide is considered to be sort of the most... The, the highest atrocity um, in our civilization. It's called the crime of all crimes. Um, and this crime was not coined before the Second World War. Um, and Raphael Lemkin, who was a Polish Jew and a jurist, lobbied at the UN for genocide to be named a crime under international law. Um, and this was in part because nobody had a word to describe the atrocities that happened to the Jewish people and not just the Jewish people, disabled people, the Roma, Poles, Russians, um, but particularly, and we'll get into this, the Jewish people during World War II. Um, and so the Genocide Convention, which was adopted by the UN in 1948, was really a solemn promise made to humanity and the Jewish people, and that's the promise of never again. So the definition of genocide uh, is the uh, intention to destroy in whole or in part a national, ethnic, racial, or religious group as such. And only if that intention is established is the legal test for genocide met in respect of specified acts such as killing, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of a national or ethnic group. And what connects all of these acts is the intention to destroy the group. So let's turn to South Africa's submissions. Uh, so South Africa really focuses on Israel's conduct or what they call uh, Israel's colonization. Since 1948, they emphasized in their opening statement that this didn't begin on October 7th, that Israel has been continually violating the rights of Palestinians, violating their right of return, uh, which just as a side note, uh, there is no right of return. Um, to the extent international law says there's a right of return, um, I have some questions for Hindus that left Pakistan during partition, the 700 to 800,000 Jews uh, who were forced out of all of the Arab nations after the, the founding of the state of Israel. Uh, to the extent there is an internationally recognized right of return, I have to say it's a lie told to people. Um, and I think it's been a huge lie told to the Palestinian people that there can be some expectation after a belligerent war um, that you can go and move back uh, into your house. But that's kind of an aside. 
South Africa in their openings, they refer to the history of Israel's genocidal actions, um, which seems sort of circular because the whole point of the hearing was presumably to establish this. Um, so they really focus on their view of the history of the state of Israel. And I called this a revisionist history. It's extremely one-sided. Um, it doesn't account for why the War of 48 ha happened, which was Israel had accepted the UN partition plan. All of the Arab countries, as well as the local uh, Arab residents, rejected any notion of any Jewish state um, in the Holy Land and declared war on them. Um, none of that is mentioned. And so I called this a revisionist history. Tal Becker, who is the lawyer for Israel, called this basically indistinguishable from Hamas's accounting of the history of Israel. And that, that's really true. Um, so uh, let's turn to how Israel responds, and then we'll turn to the crucial uh, question of intent. Um, so Israel, in their opening, they point out that Hamas, by operating out of schools, mosques, and most chillingly, hospitals, they have a well-documented strategy of maximizing civilian harm. And this is both to Palestinians and Israelis. The more civilian casualties Hamas can produce, they understand that Israel um, becomes more criticized and faces more pressure to scale back. Um, and they point out that the Genocide Convention, while acknowledging the absolutely devastating scope of civilian casualties um, in Gaza and also in all conventional wars, the Genocide Convention was not intended to address even intensive civilian casualties that happen as collateral damage. It was intended to prevent a specific and malevolent crime. And the core question is intent. Um, so let's turn to intent briefly and South Africa's evidence to intent. So they essentially make very truncated uh, assertions. Um, they take quotes that are really, it's really hard to see that they're not deliberately decontextualized. We talk about context, it's like, okay, well, look at the historical context. Here, it's literally the quote has been copied and pasted so as to present a misleading uh, picture. So, for example, um, they quote Prime Minister Netanyahu, who gave a speech on October 8th. And they just quote his statement that we will operate forcefully everywhere. But if you read the full statement, it says all of the places where Hamas is deployed, hiding and operating in, in that city, we will turn them into rubble. And I say to the residents of Gaza, leave now because we will operate forcefully everywhere. Another quote that has been bandied about a lot is the president of Israel, Isaac Herzog, who said uh, that it's an entire nation that's responsible and that was in reference to uh, the scenes that many of us saw of civilians in Gaza cheering as uh, uh, truckloads of, of Hamas fighters who were parading around dead bodies of women were cheering on the street um, and just the vile anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism doesn't even seem a strong enough word. But in that very same press conference, when asked, are you saying that civilians in Gaza are to be punished? He rejected that and has continuously rejected that. Um, and finally, uh, the claim also cites Yoav Gallant, the Israeli uh, defense minister, who said on October 9th, we are fighting human animals and acting accordingly. Um, but again, this is also clearly in reference to Hamas, and there have been over 72 tweets from Yoav Gallant since then, making clear and explicit that Israel is targeting Hamas and not Palestinian civilians. 
I also found a point made by Malcolm Shaw, who is probably the world's leading scholar of international law. Very interesting. He uh, pointed to some of the truly evil and obscene comments that are also tended in, tendered in South Africa's evidence. For example, um, the Minister of Heritage, who said something like, we will uh, turn Gaza into rubble and into a parking lot. Um, look, the thing about Israel is that there are some crazy people there. There's something called Jerusalem syndrome, where many people who move to Jerusalem develop a delusion that they're the Messiah. Um, and so there's no question that there are people on the right wing fringes of Israel who have said evil and even genocidal things. The point Malcolm Shaw uh, made while denouncing these statements is that it's not enough just to say that some crazy person in Israel who is not on the war committee, um, who has no say in war policy, um, and that further that the sentiments have no nexus with what we see to be Israel's actual war policy and actual battle policy. In the case of the Minister of Heritage, his statement was uh, immediately denounced and he was kicked out of caucus. Um, and so just bringing up some random Israeli who says something hateful is not particularly persuasive, and it certainly doesn't serve to furnish the intent requirement in genocide. So I just have one more comment on all of this, um, and that is just the elephant in the room that we have to address, that this term, as I mentioned, became a crime against humanity in the aftermath of the Holocaust, um, which was meticulously premeditated. And I recently had COVID. You may have noticed that I was away for the last few weeks and um, this maybe wasn't the best idea, but I decided to spend my COVID weekend reading a book about the Third Reich. I wanted to share this. This is what this is what genocidal intent can look like. This is from Hans Frank, who was a Nazi stormtrooper, but at the time was uh, head of the general government in Nazi occupied Poland. And this is a remark he made uh, during the Second World War. This is just as the final solution is being presented before the Nazi top brass. I will be quite open with you. They will have to be finished off one way or the other. I know that many of the measures now being taken against the Jews are criticized, but as an old national socialist, I must state that if the Jews were to survive this war, while we had sacrificed our best blood in the defense of Europe, then this war would only represent a partial success. Therefore, I will only operate on the assumption that they will disappear. They must go. But what will happen to the Jews? Do you imagine that they will actually be settled in the villages? I must ask you to arm yourself against any feelings of compassion. We must exterminate every Jew wherever we find them. It's very so, disturbing. Yeah. I had never read that before. So, of course, not all genocides are going to be as cut and dry as this, even the genocide against the Uyghurs in China, the deliberate starvation of the civilian population in North Korea, um, the uh, horrible massacre against, uh, against Muslims in, uh, in Syria, they are not as clearly cut and dry as this. But nonetheless, to put Israel's actions in a defensive war where they've made hundreds of thousands of personal phone calls, dropped leaflets, distributed very detailed maps um, trying to uh, get civilians to safety 
even though sometimes they flee to safety, for example, to the Rafah area, and then Hamas starts shooting rockets from there. To put these things in the same category is an obscenity. And I find this whole case to be an obscenity. I can't really psychoanalyze it right now, but there does seem to be something about the particular charge, frisson, valence of accusing uh, the Jewish state of committing something that is really the raison d'etre of the Jewish state. So that's all I will say about that for now. Um, Josh, Christine, any any thoughts about this ICJ case, which, by the way, we should um, hear an answer on the provisional measures within the next few weeks, although the ICJ does not have any enforcement mechanism and it could take many years for a final determination. Yeah, to, to me, this is just yet another example of Israel, which is the only Jewish state in the world being uh, held to a particular standard which we see over and over and over again. And the reason that we see that is because there are a lot of people in the world who just don't like Jews, and that's hard for a lot of people to wrap their heads around. Um, I think, you know, obviously it's all about intent, and I'm glad you're watching closely because I haven't been watching that closely, but this sure doesn't sound like a genocide to me. If you look at, uh, you know, the Rwanda genocide in 100 days, what you had was... 800,000 people from one ethnic group killed, you know, mostly with machetes. And that was clearly a genocide. Whereas if you look at what's happened in Gaza, it's, you know, 20,000 or so casualties, about a third of who are combatants in the same period of time. And it's sad that so many civilians have died, but that's just what war looks like. Like the Korean War looked like that. The Iraq War had a similar, you know, civilian casualty to to um, combatant ratio so did the second world war this is this is just a war and it's a war that Hamas, which is actually genocidal in every sense of the term started so i find it you know deeply offensive that um south africa has brought this case and uh i'm glad you're wa watching it because it would just make my blood pressure too high if i if i was watching myself christine um what are your thoughts you know, Hamas is openly genocidal. Hamas is, uh, I think it's called their charter, is openly genocidal. And what they did on October 7th was designed to be genocidal. Like if the if the, the border walls between Gaza and Israel did not exist, Hamas would attempt a genocide of the Israeli population. There's no question about that. And I'm trying to understand, I was trying to understand why South Africa is taking this position? What is it that has led to South Africa doing this? And I have a friend who who lived in South Africa and asked I asked her what what on earth is going on? And she said there's a bunch of things happening. One of them is Russian influence in South Africa and Russia has an interest in uh, obviously, Russia has supported Hamas and Russia has an influence, an interest in making this conflict in the Middle East larger to draw attention away and resources away from their operations in Ukraine. So there's that part. And then she also said that white South Africans have this guilt that many of them lived through apartheid and did nothing. And that they're trying to atone for not standing up to fight against apartheid, which was obviously a horrible system, terribly racist, extremely oppressive and immoral. 
and many South Africans did nothing. So to atone for that, they take this these very extreme positions on Israel that are not justified. I mean, Israel is not an apartheid state and Israel is not engaging in genocide, but it's obviously a lot easier to sit at home and condemn a nation far away when it than it is to actually stand up for a policy that you had at home that would actually have impacted your life significantly if you had stood up at the time in the 80s and 90s and said apartheid is wrong. So it's a lot easier to to say this faraway place is doing something wrong to make yourself feel bad or better for not doing something that would have actually, you know, taken away your wealth and power if you'd done it at home. So an interesting perspective from a friend of mine from South Africa. Uh, I can head on, head to my news headline now, which is uh, not about Israel specifically, but it is about the protests related to to Israel that we've been seeing across Canada and in Toronto in particular. So since October 7th, Toronto police say that they have managed over 308 protests, arrested 54 people and laid 117 charges, which they allege have been hate motivated. So I want to talk about the right to protest and about hate crimes in Ontario. So I think it was pretty disturbing to all of us when we saw in the immediate aftermath of the October 7th massacre by Hamas of Israeli citizens, including, you know, babies in cribs, that pe people went out to demonstrate in support of those massacres in the immediate aftermath. So on October 8th, October 9th, before Israel had even responded. And I think that there's almost no way to understand those demonstrations other than a celebration of the massacre of Jews. Now, Israel has responded militarily. It's been a, a very strong military response. There has been a terrible loss of civilian life in Gaza. And, you know, the protests about Israel, they started out as hateful and they've become more hateful as Israel has responded. So just a few examples there was an October 28th rally in Montreal where one, uh, I, I think he might be an imam, called on Allah to, quote, kill the enemies of the people of Gaza and spare none of them. So sort of echoing that language that you referenced, Joanna, from the Holocaust. Uh, you know, they we must we must be rid of these people. It's, you know, genocidal language. Um, there have been echoes of Kristallnacht with Jewish businesses being targeted with violence. And I think we all know about this Jewish deli in North York that was burned in a suspected arson and the words Free Palestine spray painted outside. There have been protests in front of Jewish owned businesses in downtown Toronto. And of course, there have been blockades at Avenue Road and Highway 401 in Toronto, which have cut off uh these protests have taken place on a bridge and they've cut off access to a largely Jewish community in that area. And the location of the protest really seems the intention is to achieve that cutting off of access to a Jewish community. Now, Josh, you have written about those protests in particular and about a recent police announcement that protests on that bridge will no longer be permitted. And I, I think we both see some problems with that. Like, I do not like these protests. I think that they are vile, but I do think you have a right to protest. And I've written about 
my concerns generally about over-policing of protests, even though this particular protest I am disgusted by. But I do, I do, I think there's some some fine lines you need to cut. First, you can't blockade roads, but you can temporarily block traffic as you know part of a moving demonstration. And, and I think that that's fine. Long-term blockades, no. Uh, and I did say the same thing about the convoy, the 2022 Freedom Convoy. But here, the police have preemptively blocked protests on this bridge, including protests that might not blockade the road. So you can't even protest on the sidewalk. So I think that presents a problem. Although, you know, I have to give the police some benefit of the, of the doubt because I can see that they're anticipating a protest on the sidewalk that will develop once again into blocking the road since that happened every other time that protest took place in uh, that location. But I I have another issue that I want to talk about related to these protests, which is one of these hate-motivated arrests that was made. And so on January 11th, the Toronto police announced that they were had arrested a 41-year-old man and charged him with public incitement of hatred for carrying the flag of a terrorist organization. And this charge is under Section 319, Sub 1 of the Criminal Code. And they originally refused, the police originally refused to say which terrorist organization flag was being flown. Uh, they've now said that it was for the a group called the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which is a secular Palestinian Marxist-Leninist terror group that was active. I mean, I guess it's still active, but it was most sort of notorious in the 1960s and 70s for hijacking commercial airliners with civilians on it, uh, suicide bombings, shootings, targeted assassinations, and now for uh, funding for Hamas. And the, the according to the federal government, the Canadian federal government, the goal of this uh, popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, which they're designated in Canada as a terrorist organization. Their goal is the destruction of the state of Israel and the establishment of a communist government in Palestine. So obviously flying this group's flag is odious. It's reprehensible. We should condemn it. It should probably trigger some type of action and investigation by CSIS. It reveals an undercurrent of support for terrorism that we kind of all swept under the rug. And it seems like support for this type of violence, this type of violent organization is, I think it's a real threat to Canadian security and it should be taken seriously. But my issue here, and look, there's perhaps not enough information that's been published to date, but to date, all we know is that he has been charged for carrying this flag. And I think that without more than just this flag, I'm a little skeptical that the elements of incitement to hatred can be made out. So the 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 offense prohibits communicating statements in a public place to incite hatred against any identifiable group where such incitement could likely lead to a breach of the peace. So there's a few elements there. There's identifiable group, there's breach of the peace. And I think an immediate obvious immediately obvious example most of us will think of is to a Nazi flag because the Nazis and the PFLP are both anti-Semitic. They're both arguably genocidal. Uh, the Nazis, obviously. So the, the PFLP, uh, 
I think you could make the case that they're genocidal as well, since they call for the destruction of the state of Israel. But you have to remember that flying a Nazi flag is not a criminal offense under Section 319 sub 1, unless it's also combined with an intent to incite hatred that could lead to a breach of the peace. And there have been many, many cases over the years dealing with people flying Nazi flags. And charges are not laid unless there's all of these factors that uh, demonstrate there's an intention to target an identifiable group and lead to a breach of the peace. And generally, just flying a flag, even a, a reprehensible flag, is not enough to meet that threshold. And what a judge will need to do in this case with this this, you know, Palestinian communist flag, terrorist flag, uh, what the judge will need to do is look at all of the evidence and look at all of the context around this protest, which took place, by the way, in downtown Toronto and uh, at Queen and, and Bay Street in the financial district. What the what the judge is going to need to to consider is whether there's an intention to target an identifiable group like Jews rather than, for example, targeting capitalism or the the West as a whole or the state of Israel um, and or or if there's some other strange intention in this case. Now, look, I again, I want to be fair to police and say there is it's entirely possible there is more context. A person who is so lacking in basic decency and morality that they will fly a terrorist flag could very well also engage in other very disturbing behavior that could result in a charge. But to date, all the police have said is that the charge is on the basis of flying this flag, which, in my opinion, based on the law, is not enough. We know that in the past it has not been enough with other flags. Um, there's also this requirement to show that it will likely lead to a breach of the peace, which could also present problems because this is a concept that is somewhat uh, lacking in clarity, but at the core, uh, at common law, it involves danger to person because we don't just the criminalization of speech is is really for the most severe and extreme cases. And it seems to me what's happening in this case is there used to be an offense on, that the Harper government had created called gl the glorification of terrorism. And it seems like the 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 police are conflating these two and, and and that charge does not exist anymore that that law does not exist anymore there's no longer a it's no longer to it's no longer possible to charge someone with the glorification of terrorism and the elements of that crime might be better made out by flying a terrorist flag but i think i don't i just don't think that on the facts we have reported to date that flying the flag of a terrorist group is enough to meet the elements of section 319. E e look, and uh, it's very uncomfortable to think that flying a Nazi flag is not a criminal offense. It's very uncomfortable to think that flying a terrorist flag is not a criminal offense. But I think that broadening the meaning of hate speech and the in expanded enforcement of hate speech and section 319.1, even in an awful case like this, is not a good idea for liberal democracies. I think ultimately it's better for us to know who our enemies are, to see them in plain sight. We shouldn't let our instincts to condemn these people, to lead us to cheer on short-sighted policing decisions that undermine a free society. Although I also say, if you're flying a, a terrorist flag, 
this is reason for CSIS to probably investigate, investigate, begin an investigation into whether or not you're engaged in other criminal offenses, like materially supporting terrorism. But that's my view on this, this flag charge and on these protests generally. And I really try hard to take principled position on, on these issues, even though it's incredibly difficult given my own personal views about people engaging in behavior like that. Josh, Joanna, any reaction? Yeah, I'll go first. So I, I think I totally agree with um, pretty much everything you said there. And I looked into this really briefly last week because I wanted to know were there ever convictions under 319.1 and did they involve something like a flag? And these charges are quite rare. And then there's always that element of incitement to the breach of the peace in these cases that's quite clear. Like, for example, one case, uh, someone went on to a person's uh, property who, you know, the property of a biracial couple planted a cross, uh, poured gasoline on it and lit that on fire. And that's like quite clearly intending to, you know, incite a breach of the peace. Yeah, there's or, a, or a clear nexus and, there between the between the actions and the violent rhetoric. Right, right. And in other cases, same thing. There's there's very clearly violent re rhetoric, you know, about um, going after that particular group and usually killing them or or kicking them out of the country at the very least. Um, and so, yeah, I totally agree on that. In terms of the banning the protests on Avenue Road, um, I'm very opposed to these protests. I think there's been some really nasty things said at these protests. And like you said, they've blockaded. Um, but as usual, police tend to like underreact to illegality at protests in the beginning by not arresting the people blockading. And then they overreact by doing things like saying, you can't protest here at all, even if you're, you know, just on the sidewalk waving a flag or whatever. And I think that goes goes too far. So I think police should should enforce the law more strongly from the beginning and that we won't have to worry about these civil liberties breaches. Joanna, what do you what do you yeah, think? Yeah, I think just the the main point of principle um, for people who this sits not well with, like we, we agree this doesn't sit well, is like, what do you think happens to this people, these people, if you just arrest them and tell them that they've done uh they've done a criminal act in the absence of any actual incitement? Like it doesn't make them come around and see um, see the correct way. It just drives them underground and makes them ultimately even more dangerous to us. So I don't uh, I don't think there's any reason either on the basis of security um, or even symbolic denunciation um, uh, or or principle to justify these arrests uh, in a case like just waving a flag. Um, and so I agree with both of you. Should we move on to bad legal takes? Sure. Um, just one very quick point. Arresting some of these people is going to make them into martyrs too. And what I see happening is they're arrested. They go to court. The judge says your charter rights have been violated. Now they're suddenly heroes when, you know, you could have arrested them when they were blockaded and actually committing a crime. And that would have been a much better outcome. But um, anyway, um, so my bad legal take goes to a TDSB, Toronto District School Board teacher named Mona Moff Takar, who decided to virtue signal to the world by tweeting out her land acknowledgement that she had projected on a screen in a classroom full of very small children at Davisville Junior Public School here in Toronto. The, the land acknowledgement states, 
We acknowledge we are hosted on the lands of the Mississaugas, the Haudenosaunee, and the Wendat people. And this is not legally accurate. It's not legally accurate to tell children that Davisville Public School is hosted on land belonging to these three Indigenous groups. The legal reality, according to centuries of Supreme Court jurisprudence, is that the underlying title to all lands here belongs to the Crown. But you know, Canada is a country based on rule of law, so it's perfectly legitimate to ask how Britain and subsequently Canada acquired that land. And I won't get deeply into it, but you know, one way is through the doctrine of discovery, which says that lands that are empty or terra nullius can just be taken. That's not what happened here. Another is through conquest, which is that you gain territory if you defeat a local tribe in a war. And in most of Canada, it's hard to make that argument. Indigenous people from the beginning were often, you know, allies of the crown and, and working with either France or, or Britain. And the other way is through treaty, which is where the local people either cede or sell the land to the crown. And that's what happened here in Toronto. Um, and I think kids need to know that, you know, there were, there, there are parts of Canada that aren't ceded. So it's more complicated there, like Northern British Columbia, but Toronto is not one of those places. Toronto was purchased uh, initially by the crown from the Mississaugas in 1787 in what's sometimes called the gunshot treaty, because it was based on the distance that a person could hear a gunshot from the edge of Lake Ontario. And this went all the way from Bay of Quinte, so like Belleville area, to Etobicoke. And the Mississaugas were paid 2,000 pounds worth of ammunition and some tobacco in exchange for all this land. So a pretty good deal for the crown. And there was some confusion about the exact boundaries and it wasn't well documented. So before building Toronto or the city that became Toronto, the British decided to repurchase the land and make it extra clear that it belonged to the crown. And this time they paid the Mississaugas 10 shillings, not very much money, 2,000 gun flints, 24 brass kettles, 120 mirrors, 24 laced hats, 96, 96 gallons of rum, and gave the Mississaugas a promise for what they really wanted most, which was continued access to the fishery at the mouth of the Etobicoke River. And in exchange for this, they they agreed to stay west of, of that river. And uh, fast forward to 1986, and the Mississaugas filed a land claim arguing that the Crown had taken more land than they'd agreed to and that they were underpaid. And as a result of this, the Crown wrote a check for 145 million to 1,842 Mississauga band members, which works out to about $78,000 per person. So I think it's kind of legally and historically ignorant to claim that, that these kids are all hosted on the land of the Mississaugas because they very clearly sold it twice and were paid a further settlement. And it's also kind of funny to, to suggest that, you know, Canadians are not legitimate owners of this land, considering how the Mississaugas acquired it, because they took it from the Iroquois and the Iroquois who are from, you know, upstate New York area had only been there for a short time, but they had it before the Mississaugas and the Iroquois, meanwhile, gained that, um, that land only after the Huron-Wendat had been pushed north by the Iroquois in, in wars and you know, facing violence, which ended in uh, 1649 with a huge massacre 
of the the Huron one debt. So that's my bad legal take. Joanna, why don't you tell us yours? My bad legal take of the week goes to the Canadian Bar Association and particularly chair of its working group on medically assisted uh, death, Shelley Bierenbaum. So the CBA has decided to take a very strong and quite controversial stance um, about medically assisted dying, which is one of the most divisive issues, I think, currently in Canadian society. So for a little bit of background, in 2021, the federal parliament passed an updated version of its made medically assisted dying bill that proposed to expand eligibility to individuals who have only a mental illness. Um, it included a two-year sunset clause before it would take effect. So again, in March of this year, in a few months, the federal liberals can extend the sunset clause um, so that this uh, issue is deferred or they can allow immediately the regime of made to be extended to individuals uh, whose only reason for seeking an assisted death is a mental disorder. And so Shelley Bierenbaum of, this, of the Bar Association said, People with mental illnesses are entitled to the same autonomy and self-determination when it comes to their health as those suffering from a physical illness um, and said a total exclusion for all people suffering from mental illness as a sole underlying condition is likely to be constitutionally challenged as violating the equality, security, and lib liberty guarantees in the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. So this is made is already an incredibly divisive issue, but needless to say, the prospect of expanding eligibility for made to somebody who suffers from depression, for example, is... Um, I think just an issue that there is a lot of debate, disagreement, um, well-founded concerns about um, it's an issue that needs to be studied more. We may look to the experience of European jurisdictions where you have seen um, the likes of uh, people in their 20s being granted access to MAID. Um, and I just think, uh, and, and to be clear, I don't think taking the stance that there may be constitutional issues with a bar to people with mental illnesses, I think that's a reasonable position. I think the bad legal take is the Canadian Bar Association, which is an association that represents all lawyers in Canada to take such a strident um, position like this publicly um, is a bad idea. I think the CBA should stay in its lane. Um, and uh, not risk truncating uh, a very robust debate that still needs to be had about this issue. Christine, what's your bad legal take? So mine is, I'm once again targeting Paul Champ, who's this Ottawa lawyer. Uh, and, and this take is, I, I mean, he's had worse and he corrected himself. So kudos to knowing that you had a bad take. So uh, our friends at the Runnymede Society put out this tweet about an event they're hosting at the University of Manitoba, and it's the national director, our friend Chris Kinsinger, and the executive director of another organization called Christian Legal Fellowship. And they announced that they're going to together be leading a discussion on religious freedom at the university. And Paul Champ took this this tweet announcing this nice event that is being put on. And he said, why do I get the feeling they won't be talking about Quebec's Bill 21, the biggest affront to religious freedom since the adoption of the charter? And for those of you who, you know, don't memorize legislation by their bill numbers, because this is now legislation, Bill 21 was a law that prohibited people in Quebec 
who have certain public sector jobs like teachers uh, from wearing obviously uh, apparent religious uh, clothing or jewelry. So you can't wear a yarmulke, you can't wear a hijab if you're a public school teacher or have another public facing uh, job in the Quebec civil service. So it, I agree with Paul Champ that this is a huge affront to religious liberty. I just don't understand why he thinks this issue would not be something that Runnymede and Christian Legal Fellowship would make comments about since Christian Legal Fellowship was quite literally an intervener in a legal challenge of Bill 21. And Chris, I think, has written multiple academic as well as media articles about Bill 21. Both these two people, Chris, Chris did his master's in religious liberty at McGill, which is the, in the province where this legislation was passed. They have been discussing it constantly. I think it is quite literally one of Chris's favorite legal issues to talk about. Uh, the plan for this Manitoba event to have a significant portion of it focus on Bill 21, a topic which he, he says he and Derek have personally written about and spoken about. And Paul responded, I stand corrected. So this shows sort of the danger of having these hot takes on Twitter, you know, attacking people that you just dislike, because I'm certain that Paul dislikes Chris and Derek for whatever stupid reason he has. Uh, because, look, he has some egg on his face. It's pretty embarrassing that he said they're not going to talk about this when it's quite literally the subject of the speech. So that's my bad legal take. But thank you, Paul, for correcting the record. That's it. I don't know how anybody could dislike Chris or, or Derek. They're both really nice. I agree. But you know guys. what? Paul, I Paul, I think, could dislike anyone. Well, his, he's, he's uh, still a bit damaged from having to hear all those noisy horns during the, the trucker <laughs> protest so that's it for the show as usual we hope you'll rate us review us and subscribe and uh, i hope you'll also share the show with a friend if you can think of somebody who would be interested in, in hearing about uh, canadian constitutional law and just a reminder you can support our work by subscribing to the ccf's youtube channel by following us on twitter by visiting our website theccf.ca and by signing up for Russ's Freedom Update newsletter. The Canadian Constitution Foundation is a nonpartisan legal charity funded by donations, so please do donate on our website if you can. Thank you for listening.